Welcome back, everyone, to Undressing Finance. I'm your host, Lindsay, and today I'm with the wonderful Sema. So Sema is with General Counsel of Remitly. I'm so excited to kind of have her come on here uh, and um, unpack some concepts with us today. Uh, Sema, will you kind of start us off briefly with maybe like your general story of how you got to Remitly, uh, what you do at Remitly, kind of a day in the life, um, and then also I kind of want to go into some amazing things you've done since you've been at Remitly, so go for it. Sure, so I'm gonna start with a, just a little correction. My name is pronounced Saima. It's an unusual name. So, yeah, thank you. Uh, you're welcome. Uh, so yes, I joined Remitly in November um, of 2020, right after Thanksgiving. Uh, and- um, The thick of the I, pandemic right there. Exactly, in the thick of the pandemic. and. Uh, it was really a great time actually to join Remitly because they were also, uh, we were also at Remitly and they at the time, because I was just joining them, um, were in the thick of dealing with this enormous need that immigrants all over the world and particularly um, in the United States had to be able to send money to their home countries and not have stand in line at a physical location because of the physical danger. So it was like a really, really uh, interesting time to join. Um, and wow. so what I manage at Remitly is uh, the legal team as well as the compliance team and the rest. So those are the three teams that reporting to me. So we really kind of handle um, all the risk functions for the organization. Cool. And uh in terms of my career before I joined Remitly, I'm an attorney. I'm a capital markets attorney by background. Uh, so after law school, I worked at law firms on capital markets transactions for a while. So that's really like raising equity and debt um, for uh, corporations that uh, you know are are growing um, or have needs for more capital than they're generating um, out of revenue. And uh, did that for about seven years, then went in-house to PepsiCo, where I was a securities uh, lawyer there uh, for about five years. And um, then most recently was at Fifth Third Bank in Cincinnati, Mm -hmm. Ohio, um, where I was a deputy general counsel. Yeah, that's cool. What an interesting mix. Like, obviously, you're doing kind of a similar role at each place, but kind of learning the environment at each different, like, industry, I'm sure has been really interesting as as well. Um, I think the one of the coolest things is obviously you've been submitly for about a year now and correct me if I'm wrong, but it was about eight months in you guys took the company public. I would love to hear kind of the process, like the internal process that you had to go through in order to make that happen. Uh, we kind of hear about what happens externally, like more from like an investment, like finance point of view, but internally like can you break it down like what you had to go through and kind of the steps to make that happen sure um so when you're going public you know fundamentally what you have to think about is as a as a company that's doing a thing right everybody that starts a company wants to do a thing and whether it's a physical widget or it's a service you're trying to provide a customer with a thing and before you go public you're really focused on that yeah um And you have to do some, you know, a lot of fintechs and um, other companies that are growth companies do have to raise capital to continue growing in the early phases of their development, right? You get the money to build your widget or whatever before you can sell your widget kind of thing. Um, And so 
going public isn't fundamentally different. You're just going to the markets for more capital, gotcha, right? Yeah. The thing that's different is the size and the scope of that effort. So when you're private and you're raising your Series A, your Series B, or even your seed venture, it's kind of like a narrower interaction, right? Like you've got a finite pool of investors that are going to take a stake in your business and give you capital to continue growing. Mm -hmm. You have to meet their needs. They're going to tell you what their needs are. You know what some of them are. Like you're, they're going to want to see your financials. They're going to want to see... Um, you know, like your projections for how you plan to grow. They're going to want to meet your management team. Mm -hmm. And so it is, it's a heavy lift, but it's with a finite pool mm -hmm. of investors. When you're going public, your investors are, is the public, right? Yeah. Anybody can buy, anybody can participate. And so it's heavily regulated by the SEC. And there is a lot that companies have to do to quote unquote, get ready to go public. And you usually start about a year and a half in advance. And so we're really eight started. months before the process. Yeah. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, years and years. One of the things you have to have is like a really robust financial reporting culture. You need to be able to generate audited financials. Mm -hmm. And that sounds like it's not that big of a deal, but it's actually incredibly difficult. And you need to have uh, like a control environment that allows you to do that. And for global companies like ours, where we're taking in revenue, um, you know, across multiple countries, yeah. we have to have controls in lots of different places. And yeah. so that takes a long time to build. You have it at one level when you're not public because you have to know how you're growing, right? So it's not like you, you start from scratch, you know, um, essentially how you're performing, right? Mm -hmm. As you're growing. And by the time you go public, you have a pretty decent idea. Yeah. But there's that added element of there can't be any margin of error. It has to be automated. It has to be uh, you know, every quarter by a certain date. I guess um, my question kind of to piggyback off of that is obviously now you guys are public, you're releasing your 10K every year and your 10Q and stuff. What's kind of like what do you have to do when you like IPO'd? And then how has the process changed now every time you release? like something along the way throughout the year? Yeah, sure. So we had to lay all the groundwork before we went public. Yeah. So like systems, controls, processes, people with the job to do those things. Mm -hmm. So it was a stand-up process, right? And we had to write our story in a way that would be relatable to everybody. Like we we know our story internally, but like to sit down and write it, it's sort of like the difference between knowing your life story and writing your autobiography. Yeah. We had to write our autobiography wow. to go public. And then we had to go on a book tour, right? To say to like all of the key investors that are in the public markets, this is who we are. This is what, you know, this is why you should be on a journey with us. Uh -huh. So I would, I would liken it to writing your autobiography. Gotcha. Halfway through your life, right? Uh, with a promise about what your future is going to hold. In it. Oh. <laughs> like, maybe like an autobiography and a college application all in one, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and so we did that. And that was really the stand-up process is a lot of work around making sure we had the ability to do that mm -hmm. in a consistent and replicable way is the IPO stand-up process. And then actually writing that autobiography and going on the book tour. Once you're public, now that we're already public, it's really a reporting exercise where every quarter we have to generate financials and update the story, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. say, hey, this is like, you know who we are. You read our autobiography. This is what's new. This is what's changed. You know, this is how, this is what we think the future holds now. And everybody understands, you know, you grow and you learn and, yeah. you know, pandemics happen, Ukraine, Russia happens, you know, yeah. 
happen and people want to know. So what are you doing about that? And so you update people mm-hmm. about all of that. Got it. Interesting. Okay. So I kind of want to segue a little bit now too. And uh, the concept I was reading about you and you were mentioning the idea of like a personal board of directors. And I thought this was such an interesting concept because a lot of my listeners are younger or they're starting their careers and they're trying to figure out their, what they're doing. And I thought this was a great concept. And I kind of wanted you to talk about it a little bit more. And also just like, if you were back in the day and you had your personal board of directors, like what are some things that you'd even go to this personal board of directors with like glean information off of? How would you utilize that? Yeah, sure. Um, so this was like a game changer for me when I realized about personal boards of directors. Um, and, and just as a little bit of context, when I was younger, I, I kind of heard about mentors and I was looking for mentors. And mm-hmm. I think one of the things I learned um, and I was lucky enough to work, you know, at PepsiCo when it was led by a woman of color as the CEO, one of the most mm-hmm. successful, you know, CEOs of uh, modern history in Renui. And I learned a lot. There were a lot of um, women leaders in that organization, which is mm-hmm. rare. And one of them said, don't look for a mentor. Almost nobody has a mentor. And the people who have mentors are usually white men. That's like a, it's like an old school concept. What you need is a personal board of directors. Yeah. And it's more achievable for people that aren't bringing social networks with them, but are trying to build their social networks. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and what it is, is you make small asks of people that are in your sphere. Mm-hmm. And many of those people, so most of us, I'll, I'll speak about my experience. I started off as a junior lawyer working at a big firm. And, and at some, you know, in some level, that's how a lot of young people start their careers are working in a, a big place with more senior people, you know, doing something. And you, you interact with that senior person, they give you an assignment and you do whatever they assign to you. It is totally appropriate to say, I really would like to know what I can do to accelerate my growth. And would you have coffee with me for 15 minutes? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd love to ask you a couple about great periodicals that you read or conferences that you go to that you think might be, you know, something I could go to as well. And a small ask and a small, um, you know, small amount of time. Yeah. And that does two things. One, you will get, if you, if you scope your question correctly, you will get something that's usable for you for your personal development. Mm -hmm. And secondly, it builds a little bit of investment in you, in that person, in, in a digestible way. Most of us, you know, who are like going through our careers, we're busy. We have families, we have work obligations. We have a lot that we're responsible for. Yeah. And so asking someone to be your mentor is like, they probably would love to do it, but they probably are just like, I don't really know if I can take that on. I'm barely getting my kids. The whole idea is that if you have a, like a board, each person's going to have a very distinct knowledge, distinct experiences, distinct ways they can pour into you. So like one person can be the greatest person in the world, but you, you don't have knowledge on everything. So I think that's fantastic. It's just a little bit of buy-in from each person because everyone has the time to give that. And everyone loves, like, like you love to give back. I think that's the most rewarding thing. And so, and then also everyone has a little bit of information that they can kind of give. So I think that's just such a fantastic, I heard that. And I was like, I need to share that idea with, with my listeners, because it's like, I've been able to have some great, like board, personal board directors along the way. And I just think it's kind of a good concept that we kind of put into, put into words. So just cool. So I think you put it real, you put it perfectly. You put it perfectly. Yeah. I think just in general, like I mentioned this like to you before, but one of the mo- why I was so excited to have Remitly and have you come on the podcast today is I've 
utilized Remitly for my own business, like with the podcast and the NFT project I'm coming out with, they have been kind of a lifesaver. Uh, and really, it's just been interesting to me to kind of do a little bit more research into them because I've used them. Uh, but just in general, like, I think the cool thing about Remitly is the idea that it is like a consumer to consumer platform. Uh, for me, like I'm an individual and I can connect with individuals all over the world. Uh, for example, like, even with my video editor, like without the ability to have a peer to peer platform, I probably would have had to go to like a bit like a large business and find someone through there and then, you know, hire them through a large business and kind of have payments through that. But like with Remitly, it kind of has taken out that middleman, uh, which I think is really cool. So I kind of wanted to hear just in general, like this is kind of one example of consumer to consumer relations, but uh, just in more of a macro, like how have you seen like Remitly slash like payment, um, the payment industry like, change the game like in this way? Yeah, I think they're the, you know, we're focused primarily on serving, as you said, consumer to consumer, and yeah. it's largely our demographic focus is largely on immigrants in the United States who are sending yeah. money to families. Yeah, and I would are, love for you to go in kind of to and your guys' impact, like onto remittances and kind of what that looks like too. So yeah, yeah, and that you know that is our CEO and founder was in Kenya um, working in the early part of his career and yeah. realized how much people go through to give and receive money to their families and, and social networks that are distributed globally. And many people's families are distributed globally. Yeah. And so the legacy infrastructure for that is pretty difficult. Um, you know, and so what we tried to do, and I think we've been pretty successful at, is we have a really customer-focused solution to that and leverage the benefits that fintech can bring for that population that is so distributed. And so some of the things we allow is like, and it became you know particularly meaningful during the pandemic, but it's something that people want all the time is you don't have to go to a physical brick and mortar location mm -hmm. to get money from point A to point B. You can yeah. just do it anytime, anywhere on your phone, just send that money. And then to have that be easy, fast, take like five minutes, not five hours yeah. and be like um, really reliable to say, you know, that when you send that money, it's going to get to where you're intending to send yeah. it. It's essentially, um, you know, ironclad. And so yeah. those have been, they sound like simple things that should have been done a long time ago, but realistically they weren't, right? The yeah. vast majority of people sending remittances globally do it through informal networks still because yeah. the traditional players in the space have been very expensive very unreliable and very difficult to use because you have to go in and stand in line and then produce 7,000 pieces of paper. Really, that's not necessary. And so we've done the work in our KYC processes, in our diligence processes to say, yeah. how do we diligence this immigrant population so that we're excluding crime, we're excluding fraud, but in, in a targeted and specific way without making it incredibly difficult to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you even break down a little bit more about KYC, you know, know your customer and how you guys have made it kind of more seamless to kind of identify like the user and who's using your guys' platform? Yeah. So what we've done is we really focus on leveraging technology to have as much of that be in our app as possible. So Historically, what would happen is, you know, you would walk into a location and there'd be like this whole intake model, right? And you have to produce all these pieces of paper or like 
generation one fintech solutions would be like, okay, you go into a separate queue and you have to like talk to a person and provide all these different things. It takes a long time. Yeah. What we bias for is to say, let's really know our immigrant population, know, do the work at the front end to figure out what are the forms of identification and verification that are required mm-hmm. and that are acceptable, but are perhaps specific, right? So most banks, for example, really focus on accepting driver's licenses and passports and social mm-hmm. security cards. And if you don't have one of those three things, you have to shunt into this special process that takes forever. Yeah. We focus more on other forms of identification that can be legitimately used to verify identities but are more readily used by immigrant populations. Mm -hmm. Phone numbers and addresses that we can use to triangulate against public records and things like that. And there are technology solutions for that. That allows us to do that in-app. So they enter a few pieces of information. They can even take a picture of their ID and upload it, right? It takes like two seconds. And then it's in the app and we we leverage technology solutions to take the easy cases, right? And so it's only the hardest, truly hardest cases a much lower percentage that get into what we call a sideline where they have to go into a manual process with a human being to kind of review things or provide additional information. Yeah. That comparatively just takes a ton to, of friction out. Yeah. Yeah. Comparatively to like other payment platforms. I think something that's so interesting about Remitly and I was reading about it a little bit is the idea that you guys have like, although you're an online like payment method, you guys still have like cash pickup and like home delivery of like money, which is just so unique and kind of shows that you guys have um, really focus on like the remittance industry because um, this makes it more widely available. And I think this is great. Can you talk a little bit more about how this works and even maybe some challenges with Im- implementing this? Because I'm sure there's some friction along the way a little bit too, you know, going off of the online payment industry. Yeah, for sure. So you hit the nail on the head. I mean, I think customer centricity is a principle that a lot of companies talk about, but that we really live every day. And, and the reason we do cash pickup is the reality is in, in the majority of the developing world, which is where the majority of our remittances are going. Yeah. Those are cash economies. Mm-hmm. They're, you know, it's the people who are sending the money are not necessarily cash economy. They're living in Western countries. They're yeah. sending the money to families and networks in developing countries. And those are cash economies. So mm-hmm. their recipients need cash pickup. And so if we want to meaningfully serve our population, that's what we have to provide and enable. And that is one of our key differentiators. We have a very broad and deep network of cash pickup um, options. To your point, home delivery, as well as uh, pickup at location. Yeah. And so that's why we do it. How we do it is really what's taken us 10 years and, and is you know sort of our it's our thing, quote unquote, right? It's like we spend a lot of time and energy negotiating with um, banks in localities, you know, in our, where our recipients are. Mm-hmm. And we negotiate terms with them one by one to say, hey, you know, we, we need to be able to do cash delivery. Yeah. Using yeah. banks in Nigeria or Pakistan. What's like the benefit, like what's the benefit of a bank like working with Remitly and offering that type of type of service? We we pro, we generally work with banks because they're reputable mm-hmm. and um, they are less likely to uh, result in, you know, uh like a bad customer experience. Yeah. Right? I guess so my, my question to just edit a little bit, how, how do the banks benefit from working with Remitly? Like to take like a percentage or how does that work? Oh, I see. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
That is, yeah, we, we negotiate contracts with them. And so those have, you know, payment models in them. I think all of that sort of gets, you know, aggregated together into what gets passed on as, as a fee on the, on our transactions, Mm -hmm. right? So our transaction fee is where we put that. And, and because of the scale that we have, we really focus on having, you know, a, a, really good fair price on that fee and, and placing it up front so that it's like really important very competitive and evident. Yeah. yeah that's awesome and, and to have the banks and the lo- local communities and have you guys do all that work for like 10 years is just really put you guys as kind of a market leader in that and I think that's just incredible really differentiate you guys um I think just in general like with like my investment club and with friends we've talked a lot about about like the future of online payments and what that's going to look like. And you see like big market players, like, you know, Google pay and Apple pay coming into it. And then we also have like, you know, peer to peer crypto payments, like emerging kind of into normalcy. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about what your thoughts are just kind of in the future of like digital payments? Yeah. Um, I think one of the things that we spend a lot of time doing is making sure we have the right balance between Um, what technology is and what technology does. And I think right now in the market, people are getting very confused between the two. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of exciting technology innovation happening right now, particularly, you know, around blockchain, distributed ledger. um, And the reality is people are very confused about what the use cases are and should be. um, And there's a lot of regulatory developments going on right now. So I think what is evident probably most of us is that people are interested in global payments. Mm-hmm. People are interested in more fairness and transparency, and people are interested in more real time and need trust mm-hmm. in their financial services. And then the last piece is, I think there is a belief that we share that technology should enable more inclusion and democratization of financial services. And I think that, you know, is very much a trend in the future where you see people focus on DeFi. I don't think people are, um, I I think DeFi is more a symptom of a lack of trust in legacy financial institutions. And so I think that that's also a trend in the future. And the trend that I think is meaningful there is there's a need for more trust in financial services, Mm -hmm. which is really where, I think remitly is um, centered and rooted is yeah. trust customers and trust. I, I think I just called them customers. Uh, customer trust is really the core of what financial services needs to be is like that partnership. And there's a hunger, I think, for more of that. Um, I think crypto to the extent that I find it really meaningful, something that doesn't get talked about enough is the trust element. Like people, I think, gravitate towards crypto because there's a feeling of, hey, the blockchain is, you can trust it. It's impartial. It's fair. It's not going to be, um, misre- like, you know, I'm not going to get bamboozled uh, mm-hmm. in the way that I might elsewhere. And so disaggregating from the technology, just really focusing on that need for trust and how we can bring it to the customers that we serve. Um, I think the challenge that's going to arise with crypto is in financial services is 
and I, I like to talk about this uh, in, again, like used terms is at the end of the day, a government needs to control its economy because it needs to be able to make sure that people can afford a loaf of bread. Mm-hmm. And where you allow currencies to become divorced from governments, what happens when the currency drops in tw- like 25%, 50% in value, or actually is like Bitcoin in is finite, you know, there's a finite amount of Bitcoin and it has hyperinflation. Yeah. How are people going to buy a loaf of bread? Yeah. And so there are some hurdles that I think we need to work through. That doesn't mean that we won't get there, but these are the interesting questions of tomorrow that I think we're all thinking about and working on. Yeah. Yeah. Totally agree. I, I really like the idea. You kind of all bring it back to trust. I mean, money is like the blood of life and buying bread and stuff. And I think remotely has really, um, center themselves in the idea of trust so I think whatever happens with the future of payments I feel like you guys have become a market leader in trust and so I think you guys will do really well with that um I guess just kind of in general to kind of wrap things up I want to ask to see if there's any other like piece of advice that you would give like young um young women young even just young individuals kind of entering their careers uh in finance business crypto anything like that I would say two pieces of advice. Um, my dad gave me this really piece of advice, really good piece of advice that served me really well, um, which is always act, never react. And uh, the more you reflect on that, the more you'll realize that's the best way to be who you want to be in the world. Mm-hmm. Things will happen. You know, you kind of, we're kind of all boats on the sea. To to the best of your ability, always make sure you know who you want to be and keep playing your own game and try to keep your reactiveness to a minimum. And the second piece of advice I'd have is have a good circle of friends and have a sense of humor because life is long and you're down one day, you'll be up the next, you know, so hang in there and try to have a good time. Yeah. I love it. Oh my gosh. This has been great. Thank you for coming and answering all my questions and being a guest on the podcast today. This is great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Chat soon. Bye. Bye.